Realtors remind us that there are three key components to a property's value. They are location, location, and location. Where a home is situated is as important as the quality of its construction in some respects. A poor location can devalue a home in comparison to an inferior house located on a better street or in a more favorable city. But as cities expand and develop, it's not always possible to know where those places are. What will turn out to be the hot property? They don't know. They don't know the history. They can't see ahead. They don't know what will develop down the road. A long time ago, some people purchased very cheap land on Manhattan Island in New York City. Land that is now among the most expensive in the earth. But a few years ago, investors purchased some high-priced lots in California. There was going to be a man-made lake created. And this area, this little town, was to become the next Lake Tahoe. And so people were putting up big amounts of money. Well, the project never happened. And the land that they paid so much for is today worthless. As cities develop... Investors grope about in the darkness, so to speak, hoping to secure what will become prime property. But they never really know for sure. We could almost say that salvation history is also a matter of location, location, location. With God orchestrating an intriguing process by which to identify the ultimate location. Now we're very familiar with Genesis 3.15 and have referred to it often throughout this series on the city. But we have this prophecy of God in the curse upon the serpent where He says in Genesis 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. How are we to identify the one that will crush Satan's head? How do you know that Jesus is Messiah? The Bible works this out through a people, through a lineage. And it directs us to trace this lineage right out of the beginning chapters of the Bible. We trace the lineage from Adam to Abel who died in true worship, in persecution. Then through Seth, his replacement. And then through Noah, the one that God chose to secure and deliver from the flood. And then through his son, Shem. And then through the one individual, Abraham. God choosing him out of his paganism and bringing him to be the one through whom Messiah would be born. And so it is a people that we are chasing, a people that we are looking to. God pointing to His Messiah through this people. But not only do the Scriptures identify the Messiah by bloodlines, but also by location. How do we know Jesus is Messiah? How do we know that He is the one sent from God to deliver us from our sin? Location is a major part of the answer. God marks a narrow line of people that helps us identify Messiah through the children of Abraham. 
God combines that evidence with a specific place on the earth. We've noted this in Genesis 12. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went. His location. As the Lord had told him. And when they came to the land of Canaan, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I give this land. There's the two, the people and the place. To your offspring I give this place. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to Bethel. And there he also built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Just let this passage in Genesis 12 filter down. Grasp it as it points to people, as it points to place. As we've considered in past weeks, Abraham builds altars at these various places in the land in contrast to Cain's city located east of Eden, that arrogant city that stands in defiance of God. In contrast to Babel, Cain's offspring migrate to a plain east of Ararat. And they say, let us make a name for ourselves. They erect a tower of false worship in that place. But the story of redemption highlights Abraham's erecting altars for the true worship of God in the land while Cain's offspring are erecting their own places of worship to false gods in that same land. So where we see Abraham moving about and setting up altars, we must know that there's also a people already there who have many altars marking this same land. And that brings us today in our series on the city to the book of Deuteronomy. And I encourage you to draw your attention to chapter 12 of Deuteronomy. Let's set the scene as we come to Deuteronomy with this arrow here that you have on the map. You might be able to perceive an X there that uh, the Israelites are on the east side of the Jordan River. They've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Abraham's offspring, now the nation of Israel, is poised on the east side of the Jordan River to enter the land that God promised to Abraham so long ago. The nation readies herself to invade that land. And Deuteronomy is a book that really is fixated on the land. The land is of utter importance in this book. We notice just two examples of this as the book begins. Well, that's why the yellow X wasn't there. It wasn't there yet. There it is. So let me show you that. Just right there, that X about where they're positioned. But Deuteronomy begins in, chap, begins in chapter 1. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and their offspring after them. In chapter 9, not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that He may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. So going in to possess the land is connected directly to the promise. 
that God has given to Abraham and to his offspring to inherit this land. And we'll notice again that the judge of all the earth does right. He is removing people from this land, but he is doing so in discipline. This is one of the soft spots, some would say, critics would say, about the Bible and about the God of Scripture. That he would drive out people living in this land. That there would be this this genocide of sorts. But let's remember what Scripture truly reveals here. And let's go to our own hearts as well. We might, as we did last week, just describe a scenario. You learn that in the city there's an apartment building. It's a small building, but it's absolutely controlled by a gang. In every one of the apartments there are gang members that are occupying these places. They are convicted murderers. Some who have gotten off and are here, others have not yet been discovered, but we know that they are killing people on the streets. Not only that, but they have kidnapped people and continue to do so and are profiting from their bodies out of this building. There are people that are taken against their will. They are drugged and drug dealing is taking place in the apartment building and outside of the apartment building. These individuals are ruthless tyrants who rule the streets with terror. And you hear about this place and something inside of you screams out, shut it down. Clean it out. Like happened where we lived once, they took a front-end loader right through the wall of the building and nobody complained until they found out it was the wrong house. That was a little bit of a problem. But they, they did that where we lived sometimes. Just take the thing right into the wall of the building and blast it down. Nobody cared. It was a rat's nest at best. If those people are scattered... And that building is even raised, knocked down. Everybody with any decency says that's a good thing. I want to take what's inside of you there that says that's good, that is just, that is right, this place should be addressed. And multiply that infinitely. And that's what God thinks about the Canaanites. There is such wickedness that has developed over so many centuries of time that the justice of God is screaming out for the end of this civilization. And to show God's faithfulness to this end, and that He is not being rash, that He's not saying, I have these people, I need a place for them, I'll just wipe out these innocent people that are living here, Remember that in Genesis 15, God said, I'm going to let these people alone for 400 years. And over that 400 year period, they will become so corrupt that there will be nothing else that should be done but for them to be driven out. That's the real context of what's happening here. And so as God uses His people as a tool of discipline, He reminds them here on the screen, Deuteronomy 9.5, it's not because of some innate righteousness in you that I give you this land. But on the positive side of it, I chose Abraham and I chose to give him this land. On the negative side of it, our people 
whose sin against heaven is screaming out for discipline and justice. God now instructs the Israelites concerning their moral responsibility as they enter this land. Put yourself there. You're on the other side of the Jordan. You're hearing in Deuteronomy the law reiterated, refreshed, discussed. How are we going to live when we go into that land? And you need to understand there's people living there. And they're not good people. And so the first line of instruction that we find here in Deuteronomy 12 is that there are places to destroy in opposition to false worship in the land. First word of instruction beginning at verse 1. These are the statutes and the rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. These are the statutes and rules. These is pointing back to what has already been said in the book of Deuteronomy. I think it's pointing forward as well. The whole book is about the rules and the statutes of God. So it's, it's teeming with these reminders of God's law. As Israel enters the land, what is the point? She must distinguish herself from the nations by, by obeying God's will. This place, this land, is God's gift to them. But as they possess the land, they will be tempted to identify with the false worship of the people who occupy that land. And so God says, honor my word. Be prepared. Verse 2, you shall surely then destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods. On the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. So going into the land, they have these instructions. Just a quick bridge from our day to their context. Pagans commonly situated places of worship on top of hills. And they loved especially these tall, overarching trees. Have you ever had the experience of standing under a massive tree? And maybe it's in a woods. If you've ever been under the redwoods in California, there's a, there's a sense there of what? Of awe, of peace. These massive trees overarching. It just gives us as human beings a sense of, the, of majesty and of peacefulness and quiet. And so the pagans drawing on that same feeling that we get on these hills, but especially under these trees, would erect places of pagan worship. Let me say, without getting into detail, these were places of utter debauchery. You could perceive pretty much anything in this culture that is wicked and godless, particularly from a sensual and sexual standpoint, and you'll only begin to scratch the surface of what was taking place at these situations. It was wicked. And God says to the Israelites, as you enter the land, you will find these places. They're going to be on the high hills. You'll see them. There will be these pillars rising up, and that will indicate the spot. Do not be drawn into their worship. You must resist it. It has an appeal. It will draw you in. 
Everything sensual within you by nature is going to be drawn to these sights. Don't go in there. Don't go into worship. These places as an abomination to me are to serve, you are to serve my glory by destroying them. Wipe them out. Altars, places for animal sacrifice offered to false gods in the spirit of Cain. Pillars, wooden poles marking these pagan sites. Asherim, the goddess Asherah, the chief fertility goddess and the consort of Baal. Images to her were to be toppled and acts of wickedness under her statue were to be ended. These places must be wiped out. As I clean out this place, I'm calling you to take your front end loader and take the house down so to speak. Wipe it out. The key is verse 4. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. Distinctive worship of God on His terms. But notice here this subtly. It's possible to worship God, the true God, the God of Abraham, in pagan ways. This is what we call syncretism. Worshipping the true God, but doing so according to the stipulations of the godless culture in which we find ourselves. Don't do that. Do not worship me that way. We have the whole book of Leviticus that's been given. Here is how you are to worship me. Don't follow their ways. So, it is a call then to holiness to distinctive living and obedience to God's Word, setting us apart from the world. They were to set themselves apart from the idolatries of sexual promiscuity in the land, of worshiping God in fleshly ways. Lamech of Genesis 4, Sodom of Genesis 19, this spirit was alive and well in Canaan. They were not to worship that way. It's a call to avoid the idolatries of sexual promiscuity. It is a call certainly to us in our day as well as in theirs to avoid the idolatries of health and wealth. If you have come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, He calls you to distinctive worship. To worship God alone. And to not be drawn in by the idolatries of this world. There are many false gods that are alive in our own setting, in our own situation. We don't put them perhaps up as poles, though some places do. I've seen them, these poles. They're still being made today. In the paganism of our land, who knows, we may see more of them. But though it might not be a literal altar and a literal pole like this, there is the bowing down of the culture in which we live to the gods of sex and money and health. If we know the true living Christ in obedience to His Word, we will be distinctive people. We're not going to laugh at the same things. We're not going to pursue the same things. We are going to live a life of holiness that's different. There is a pull today as there was a pull then to godlessness. We must obey the Word of God. That's the people we are. Israel writes Moses, that's the people that you are. Destroy these places of false worship. 
And in our lives on some level, we do not do this physically as a church. We're in a different era, a different situation, a different place in salvation history. But we should, in our individual lives, be bringing these idols down. And not be living by the dictates of the culture in which we live, but living by the Word of God. It should permeate our daily lives. We should meditate upon it and read it. We should read it in our homes, read it in our church, understand its teaching. God's Word is our life. Not the satisfaction of the flesh. That's what God is saying to His people. I call you to this distinctive life. Not to find glory and joy in the pleasures of sin that last for but a season, but to find your glory and joy in God alone. That is how we will live if we honor His Word. Honor that Word as you go in and end these places that stand against it. At verse 5, the text moves into a distinct section. And that is emphasizing now, not places to destroy, but a place to seek in pursuit of the true (coughs) worship in the land. A place to seek in pursuit of true worship in the land. Verse 5, But you, in contrast, shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put His name and to make His habitation there. You will seek the place and God will choose it. Notice the phrase, in your tribes. Here in this land, among your tribes, there will be a place, and He will put His name there. He will dwell there. The pagan inhabitants of the land grope in spiritual darkness after false gods. Israel, by contrast, is to seek the place that the Lord will choose. This place that God will choose appears in some form 23 times in Deuteronomy. 23 times it refers to this place. Moses is trying to get our attention here. God is seeking to get Israel's attention. This place, this place, this place. You're to seek it. Just two examples of these 23 with the one that we have here already. But chapter 16, at the same place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name dwell in it, there you shall offer the Passover sacrifice. Deuteronomy 26, you shall take some of the first of all the fruit of the ground which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name to dwell there. Twenty-three times in Deuteronomy, this place is all important. In this land that I have marked out and given to you in fulfillment of my promise to Abraham. We've got to catch this. So where Abraham, in a manner of speaking, groped about in the dark, erecting altars hundreds of years earlier, Israel is now to continue seeking a place of worship, confident that God will lead her there. This place will be where He puts His name and makes His habitation. The Hebrew word to put or place or to set is used in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 8. This is where God put Adam in the garden. I'm going to find a place where I'll put my name. 
I will settle it there. I will rest it there. So in contrast to the city of Babel, whose occupants sought a name for themselves, Genesis 11.4, God promises to dwell among Israel at a place that Israel must seek out in the land. Some place there, among the tribes, God will put His name there. Verse 6, There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes, in the contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice, you and your household, in all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. We will not spend time on the specifics of these sacrifices. The book of Leviticus is given to this end, and the Israelites have heard this instruction before. Moses is not concerned here to flesh out all of the nuances of these various sacrifices. But let's capture this. God in His grace has decided this. People sin and break God's law. Violating a holy God, they deserve judgment. They deserve to die. But in my grace, I will present to them this freedom. They can substitute an animal in their place. And the death of that animal will stand in to cover sin for now. That's the grace of God. There's not a lot said about it here. But Moses does say in verse 7, rejoice in this. Rejoice in this meal, this sacrifice that's there. It was a somber occasion as the sinner leans his body weight on the sacrificial animal. He feels the life slipping away as the throat is slit. It's very physical. It's smelly. It's, you're putting your weight on this animal. You're feeling its life shake out of it as the blood flows. It's a somber occasion. But then you take a portion of that sacrificial animal and you sit down in the presence of the priest at the place that God will discern and and point them to and you eat. And you're to eat with joy. We get that, don't we? We get that on the table that's before us here today. There's a somberness here. Jesus' life was sacrificed in my place. And until we come to this table and own that, that Jesus' death was for me, that is, He stood in my place and He paid the penalty of the judgment of God for me. Until we come to that, we're not really ready to come before this table. Till we grasp the sum of the significance. We won't grasp it all forever. But little by little coming to grasp the significance that here I remember that Jesus stood in my place and died for me. But this table is also a place of rejoicing. Isn't that strange? Something so somber, so serious, such a cost that was paid. And yet there's joy here as we eat. Because we know in this sacrifice we have been forgiven. 
God in His mercy through this means, a substitute, calls us then to the forgiveness of sin, grants it to us, and calls us to this joy in our salvation. And I, I may speak to you when I say here, and I just, I just ask that you hear me. You may think about this and say, I don't get the grief. I, I, I mean, it's sad when somebody dies, but I don't get the grief and the horror of Jesus dying for me. I just don't connect with that. Or maybe you say the joy of it. I don't understand the joy of communing with Christ. It's very possible. I don't know your heart. I can't read everything here but I think it's very possible that there's no sensitivity to that grief and that joy because you've never met Christ. You're dead to it. And I want to encourage you, if you sense that, and say, yeah, that's me, you're not going to come alive to it by cleaning up your act. You're not going to come alive to it in your own strength. You need to pray and seek in Christ this grace. That He would pour out His grace that you would see Christ died for me. I deserve that judgment. And it was poured out on Him so that I might live. When that truth dawns, there's a grief that is there. There's a sense that He died for me. I deserved His punishment. But there's a joy that comes in to say, because Christ has satisfied the wrath of God against sin, I can rejoice in His forgiveness and mercy. May we come before this table today in that spirit of somber grief as we think of our sin, but eating and communing together in Christ with great joy and rejoicing because of what He's done. As Moses speaks of pure worship at this place that he speaks of, he cannot help but consider Israel's current situation. So he remarks in verse 8, you shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing whatever is right in his own eyes. Zero in here for a moment. This is a little complicated, but... I think that's a figure of speech. It's not a reference to Israel's rebellion. The nation is walking actually in faithfulness at this time to enter into the land. It's a reference rather to Israel's worship in her in the wilderness wanderings. Kyle and Dalich note, for instance, they give as an example, the morning and evening sacrifices. How do you do that when the whole tabernacle has been all disassembled and is being carried through the wilderness? There's things they just had to make up on the fly and things they couldn't do to honor the law. I think that's the idea of it. This wandering would end, is what Moses is saying. And the place God designed for His worship in the land would be located and thereafter regulate worship. I think that's the right interpretation in light of verse 9. Notice what he says, For you have not yet come to the rest and to the inheritance that the Lord your God is giving you. Because, verse 9, they're not in the land, verse 8, they're doing what's right in their own eyes. I don't think we should take that like the judges, that everybody's just freely sinning and don't care about God. 
This is the nation, this is the generation that went into the land in faith and conquered it under Joshua. But they're doing what's right in their own eyes in the sense they're kind of making things up as they go because they're not settled in the land. But you're going to be settled in the land, Moses says, verse 9. Verse 10, but when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when He gives you rest from all your enemies around you so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, and the contribution that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God. You, your sons, your daughters, your male servants, your female servants, and the Levite that is within your towns, since he has no portion or inheritance with you. At that place, the Levites too will rejoice as you do in worship. And notice in verse 10, that word rest again. God is promising Israel, I will rest you at peace in the land. It's very Edenic. Very Eden-like language. I will rest you in this land. I will put you at peace. And in that land, God emphasizes the place that the Lord will choose to make His name dwell there again. And again, the right attitude of worship, rejoicing as in verse 7. So hitting this idea from a negative angle now, Moses warns Israel in order to make his thesis perfectly clear. Verse 13, take care that you do not offer your burnt offerings at any place that you see, but at the place that the Lord will choose in one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I am commanding you. I'm confident you're awake enough to catch this. If not, get on the page with us. This is really clear, isn't it? This is something we could talk through with a first, second grade Bible class. It's really clear the emphasis of this passage, isn't it? But just look at it visually here. You shall seek the place. There God will make his habitation. There you may go and bring your offerings. There. There you shall eat before the Lord. The place. There. There. The place, there, there. How do we miss it? This place, this location, God is pointing His people there. Add to this passage that there are 23 direct references to this place using the word place in Deuteronomy. It is fixating on the land. For Deuteronomy, location is crucial, not for property prices, but for determining the message of God's saving grace in true worship. Well, guide someone in that doesn't know the answer here. What would you say? You're guiding someone in to understand what's the place. The place is obviously wherever the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant are located. At one place in Israel's history, the place was Shiloh. 
But ultimately, it is obviously pointing us to Mount Zion in the city of Jerusalem. Notice just, just a few references here that indicate this in other texts. That your eyes may be open night and day toward his house. Here we, we have Solomon's prayer. The place which you have said, my name shall be there. Solomon's talking about the temple. This is that place. And you'll hear our prayers from here. First Kings 9, the Lord said to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea, Solomon, which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built. Notice it. By putting my name there forever. My eyes and my, eyes and my heart will be there for all time. 1 Kings 14, Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem. Notice how Jerusalem is referred to. This is just a historical note. But it's Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. Notice the phrase. Remember I said, remember tribes of Israel. Notice it here. Out of all the tribes of Israel, to put his name there. Prophetically in Isaiah, at that time tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts, that is, to Mount Zion, the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. As we have considered the defiant city of man in recent weeks, we should not conclude that God despises cities. What God despises is sin. And where cities bring sinners together, they can be places of unusual wickedness. But all along, as man is erecting his city, Cain's city, the titans of Genesis 6, Babel in Genesis 11, Sodom in Genesis 19, as man erects his city in rebellion against God, God is slowly working to establish his city. His city is in view as a place where His glory will reside among His people. God loves the concept of city. For there is brought together and epitomized His reign over His people. Well, how is this place discovered? How instructive this is to us as well. How is it discovered? The place, I mean, 23 times He's talking about the place that they don't know what it is yet. Providentially, it is discovered, not miraculously, slowly, not quickly. And as the sovereign purposes of God interplay with the actions of man, we see how God chooses to work even in this situation providentially. All along, God knew precisely where this place was. He knew where that place would be located centuries before when he talked to Abraham and said, you'll come back here after 400 years in slavery in Egypt. Israel keeps groping in the dark until one day David commits, oh, this is, this is the beauty of divine providence, until one day David does what? He commits an egregious sin against God. Not David, in the wonder of his person, in the godliness of his heart, stumbles on the place and discerns 
somehow that this is the place. No, it's in the wickedness of his own heart as he numbers the people in pride and arrogance, as he stands with the titans of Genesis 6 and numbers Israel, God comes down with a severe discipline against the nation. And in repentance, David comes to a threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite, on that hill where the Jebusites, which the Jebusites then occupy, he comes to that place, and now David then occupying this place comes now to Arana, who's still there, using this as a threshing floor, and he purchases it as an act of worship in the pursuit of forgiveness. You can't make this up. For hundreds of years, you'll come back here. I want you to enter into this land and to crush the false altars And I will point you to the place. And here it is. Now on Mount Zion. So it is a people that God calls us to notice. But it's also a place that is so crucial to the story. God's redemptive plan could not be worked out in India or China or Africa or North America. It was going to be worked out there. And it's a reminder to us as we even consider Genesis 10 and the borders that are set out there that in that place in Genesis 10. It's a reminder to us that this is no afterthought. This is the hand of Almighty God working through people and place to say, here is where redemption's story is centered. And if you're that person who does not see the grief of Christ's death for you, and you don't see the joy of the forgiveness of sins, you today are being brought to consider a place. It's a hill on Mount Zion. And it's a place of sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And today... The location of God's redemptive work is in the New Testament church, which is the temple of the living God. We have no time to think on that and consider it at any great length, but Christ crucified and risen, His Holy Spirit sent, God's glory now resides in us as the church, the living temple of God. As Ephesians 2 brings out, He has made you a living temple in which the Spirit of God dwells. The temple now, not in Jerusalem in that place, the temple now in this place in one sense. It is the people of God. We are called then as that people to holiness. We're called to commune with Jesus Christ, gathered here as the temple of God, the dwelling place of God. And we come here at this table to remember who we are. We remember Christ's redemptive work, the plan of God in salvation, to bring salvation in a person, in a place, in time. Christ crucified for the forgiveness of sins on that very mount. Mount Moriah, Mount Zion, Jerusalem. We gather here then also to commune as the living temple of God at this table. What we remember here, what we observe here, the communion with Christ and with His people here has been purchased by the blood of Christ 
and is to be the ultimate source of our joy and hope as we make our journey to a city whose foundation has been built by God, whose presence indwells that city that is yet future. In that hope we come.